Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden in Christ, in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on your new self which is being renewed in the knowledge and in the image of the creator, its creator. There is here no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All right, hello again. So um, we're going to have a look at what that passage uh, has to say to us today. And as I mentioned before, I think it has a lot to say to us today. I was talking to um, a friend of mine the other day and he's part of a, a church that has just got a new pastor that has started and that pastor is quite well known, at least I know who he is and I've heard of him and I've heard he's quite a good preacher. And I, So I said to my friend, oh, how are you enjoying your new pastor? Like, I hear he's a pretty good preacher. And he said, he is, he's a good preacher, he's really, really listenable and engaging and all of that. He said, but... It's kind of the same stuff as ever. It's like, you know, pray more, serve more, give more, love more, try hard and be more like Jesus. Now, maybe he's being a little bit cynical about it, I don't know, but a lot of preaching does sound like that, doesn't it? Like, what can we do? Pray more, give more, serve more, love more, try hard, be more like Jesus. 
But really, is what we're called to do to try to be more like Jesus? Is, is that our task? Is that all discipleship just comes down to? Come on, guys, you can do more than, like, try a little bit harder to be more like Jesus. Read your Bible, read all the stuff that Jesus says and does. Like, come on, you can do it. Like, keep on trying. Pray more, give more, serve more. Or is there something more to this, and something more, more mysterious? And I, I want to suggest even something more beautiful than just us trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try to be a bit more like Jesus. Sometimes when I hear people say, come on, be more like Jesus, it sounds to me like that old like 1980s campaign where um, Nike was trying to get us to be like Mike. I know some of you weren't even born in the 1980s nor even thought about in the 1980s. But there was a decade called the 1980s and there was a basketball player called Michael Jordan and Nike did this campaign which ran for like nearly 20 years, Be Like Mike. Like read the, buy the right shoes, read about what he does, wear the right clothes, try really hard. We could try really hard to try and be like Michael Jordan but you're not going to be like Michael Jordan, right? Like sometimes it's, is this what it means for us to be like Jesus? Can you actually just try harder and you would get to be more like Jesus in the way like a basketball fan might like try really hard to be more like Mike? Or is there something more to it than that? And there's nothing wrong with, with, with role models. There's nothing wrong with like looking at sports people or other people who we look up to and think, oh, I would like to kind of follow some of their values or their practices and the like. Some people make it easy for you. Some people even write books with lists of rules on how you can be more like them. But is that what Jesus did? I mean, does, is, is, is being like Christ simply a matter of reading what he wrote and then trying to put it into practice? In the same way that you could read Plato or you could read Confucius or you could read Karl Marx. Just read all that stuff and just try to be like those guys. Is that all that discipleship is all about? Well, I want to suggest to you it's not. And I want to suggest to you that the way Paul speaks about discipleship, being like Christ, in Colossians chapter 3, never at any point kind of gives us the impression Jesus is our role model. He's our guru. You can read Marx. You can read Plato. I, I'm going to read Jesus and kind of put into practice the things that he said. Uh, a while ago, I was reading a book by a guy called uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, he wrote a book called Mere Christianity, where he talked about exactly this thing. He said, we are actually meant to become shaped more and more in the likeness of Jesus. He actually used a really provocative saying. He said, we are meant to be little Christs. Like, Christ is our example and we are to be shaped and become more and more like him. We are to become little Christs. But we don't become little Christs just by reading the words that Jesus said and trying to put them into practice. This is part of what he says in the book, Mere Christianity. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of a Christian is simply nothing else. But put right out of your head that idea that these are only fancy ways of saying that Christians are to read what Christ said and try to carry it out. As one may read Plato or, or read what Plato or Marx said and try to carry it out. They mean something much more than that. And that something much more than that is exactly what I think we'll find here in this passage that was just read to us. Let me remind you of the passage. I'm going to read uh, the first few verses of the passage that uh, Rami read to us before to 
listen to the sound, listen to the quality of what Paul is speaking about here, and you see it is far, far richer and more beautiful than, as, as C.S. Lewis says, just trying to read what Jesus uh, said and carry it out. Here's how this passage begins. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. This is not Jesus is your role model. This is not like Jesus is your guru. This is not like Jesus has got the words of wisdom and just follow what that really clever Galilean wrote all those years ago. What this saying here is this. You are to fold your whole sense of identity into the identity and character of God. That his life is to become your life. That his death is to become then your death. That his very resurrection then becomes your resurrection. That his glory then becomes your hope of glory. This isn't just emulation or imitation. What he's talking about here is actually capitulating yourself into the very arms of Christ. Orienting your whole identity around him. Set your heart, set your mind on the things above. Become a little Christ, not by your own efforts but by the work of Christ in your life. I know this sounds mysterious, but let me explain a bit more about what he means by this. Because when he talks about Christ in chapter 3, he's not just talking about the incarnation. He's not just talking about Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus from Galilee. He's not just talking about the bearded, sandaled Jesus. That's how we encounter Jesus in flesh. He is talking about the ascended, risen, cosmic Christ. Like, if we just go back a couple of chapters into Colossians chapter 1, listen to how he introduces Jesus to the Colossians. It's almost as if he's saying, listen, by the time we get to chapter 3, I'm going to be telling you to become like a little Christ. But just so you're clear, let me tell you who Christ is. So right up front, this is who Christ is, according to Paul, writing to the Colossians in chapter 1. We'll come back to chapter 3 in a minute. In chapter 1, he says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. What? Like this isn't just like this guy lived 2,000 years ago and he said a lot of really smart things and he, he was miraculous and he healed people. Try to be more like him. What Paul is saying is set your mind on the Christ who was there before the foundation of the world. He is before all things. He is in all things. Through him, the whole universe was created. It was created for him. He owns it. And not only that, Christ is the force that holds the universe together. Can you even begin to imagine this? Set your minds on this Christ, is what Paul is saying. Not just on the wisdom that he says. That's all important. That's all part of how he's revealed to us in in the incarnation, in Christ. But not just as some old guru that died 2,000 years ago, but as the very force and power that holds the universe together. 
And when he speaks this way, he's speaking very directly into questions and concerns that people in the ancient world, in Colossae, the city that these people live in, and beyond. There was big debates happening at this time when Paul writes this letter about how the whole world holds together. Up until that point, people used to explain the universe by saying, up above the big blue dome above us, there's the heavens and all the gods live up there. And each god has a different department of the universe. Like there's a sea god and a mountain god and a fertility god and there's a god for everything. And they all run the universe as kind of departmental heads. That's how it all works. Why is there a flood? Because the river god was unhappy with us. You know, why is my cattle not fertile? Because the fertility gods are unhappy with you. I mean, it was all run up there by this big pantheon of gods. But what had started to happen by the early part of what we now call the Christian era, what started to happen was that people started to look at the universe around them and they used to say, yeah, it doesn't look like it's really run by a bunch of chaotic, capricious, self-interested gods up in heaven. They just look like they couldn't run a universe if they tried. They're all getting drunk and sleeping with each other's mothers or sisters. and There's all sorts of carry-on. If you read all the stories, they just sound like a complete schmozzle up there. But when we look at the universe, this is what ancient people would say, the sun comes up in the east every day. It comes up in different parts of the East at different times of the year. And you can actually plot it. It's it's, it's reliable, it's dependable, it's unchanging. And it tracks its its track across the southern sky. Anyway, if we tracked it a number of times, we've seen it, it follows the same track at the same time of the year. Every year, year in and year out. Like, if we look at our universe, we see utter harmony. Constellations fill the skies at different times of the year, but at the same time of the year, every year. Like you could set your watch by it, except they didn't have watches back then, but you know what I'm saying. It is such a sense of unity and harmony in the universe. What could hold this all together? Not a whole bunch of gods all running different parts of it. It doesn't make any sense. There must be some unifying force, something that maintains a sense of harmony. That's not to say that there weren't floods or that there weren't droughts, that, that harmony wasn't interrupted at times, but that, that interruption just confirmed the reality that the universe was actually an integrated whole working together. And so pagan philosophers started to say, yeah, are you sure it's really a whole bunch of gods? I don't think so. And they came up with this theory. They said, there must be a voice that speaks all this into reality. There must be a word that goes out that makes the sun come up. They would often say, how do all the trees in the field all know that at this time of the year they should all lose their leaves? Now, we've cut down trees, there's no machinery, there's no brain, there's no communication device, but they all do it at the same time. Some word must speak this into them and all the foliage falls and then this word must speak to them again in spring and they start to bud with new life. What makes my cattle fertile or what makes my, my, my sheep give birth to lambs at this time of the year, every year, what speaks to them? What word goes out which maintains this rhythm and this order? And because they're like, well, we can't even begin to imagine what would do that, they just came up with this kind of really technical term. They just called it the logos. Logos just means word. They said there must be this 
this force, this thrum that runs through all things, that orchestrates everything and keeps it all in order. The logos holds things together. And you can imagine what Jewish philosophers did with that, can't you? They'd be like, we've been telling you this for generations. It's true. There is one voice. There is one word. There is one entity that holds all things together. Not a big pantheon of gods up in the sky. One God. The Logos is Yahweh, the one true and only God. And it wasn't long before the Christians, a very brand new movement at that time, said, you're both right. Yes, there is a Logos. There is a word that goes out that sustains and maintains the whole order of the universe. And yes, it's not an inanimate voice. It's a person. It's Yahweh. And guess what? Yahweh has revealed himself to us in flesh. So if I jump out of Paul, have you read John's gospel lately? It begins like this. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And then about a dozen verses later, he then says, and the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. The force that sustains the universe, the thing that you can't quite figure out, the thing he just called Logos, word, it's Yahweh, but more than Yahweh, Yahweh has revealed himself to us in the person of his son. Let us tell you, let us tell you all about him. You're with me so far? So when you then jump back into Paul, I was just in John for a second then, but if you jump back into Paul in chapter 1 and you hear Paul saying, he was before all things, all things were created through him, he holds things all together. Can you hear kind of logos kind of thinking behind this? Can you hear what he's trying to say? All the chatter about how does the universe hold together? It's Jesus. It's the Christ. It's the ascended, risen Christ that holds the universe together. So when Paul then says, I want you to set your mind on the things above. I want you to be shaped by Jesus into little Christs. He's not just thinking about the Galilean with the beard and the sandals like the guy on the TV show Chosen. He's actually thinking about this, something much more cosmic, something much more extraordinary. The very force that created the universe and holds it together. And when he talks about us being like Jesus, it's not a matter, as I said before, of just learning the words of Jesus and trying to put them into practice. It's a thoroughly immersive experience. So the language he talks about is set your mind, like your very way of thinking upon this cosmic Christ. Your heart, your affections, your desires, hand them over entirely to this Christ who holds all things together, who is there at the foundation of the universe and is directing history to its true end. Set your mind and your heart on these things. And then he ends up using kind of language of, of clothing, like clothe yourself and put on Jesus. Some people think he was actually alluding to the, the red-coloured cloth that Colossae was famous for making. It was a a centre of the production of this particularly beautifully beautiful red, deep red-coloured cloth. So some scholars think, or maybe he's alluding to that, you know that cloth you make? Put Christ on like that cloth. Others say he could be alluding to um, 
to ancient theatre, because in ancient theatre, sometimes a whole production would just have two or three actors, and they would put on different costumes or different masks or different hats and play multiple characters. And so he's saying, put on Christ like an actor puts on a mask and becomes that character. In any sense, what he's referring here is an entirely immersive experience. Offer up your whole identity into the experience of this extraordinary Christ. Now, it could be about putting on red cloth, it could be about playing different characters, but I think I could come up with a better illustration of this. St. Paul, but he could not possibly have conceived of a better illustration for what it means to put on Christ than this. <laughs> Virtual reality or augmented reality goggles are a perfect illustration of what he's trying to say. Put on Christ. Like, let Christ completely shape your entire sense of the world and who you are. Like, when you put on these glasses, and trust me, folks, as you know, they're coming because Apple is about to release them, and before you know it, we'll all be wearing them at some point. When you put on virtual reality goggles, all the laws of society and nature are completely usurped. Have you tried it before? It's like you put this on, it's just like suddenly like the sky is pink, it's not blue, and I can fly, or I can breathe underwater. Or, like everything is completely different. All the rules of life as I live it in the ordinary world are completely transformed. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about. Like put on Christ, see the world as Christ sees it. Be shaped entirely by the vision that Christ has for you. This one who controls the universe is inviting you to step into him and allow him to completely shape how you see the world. And then in this chapter, or this passage that we just had read to us, he then goes on to say, there are a couple of things I want to let you know about this. If you put Christ on like this, there are certain things that life is not like when you are in Christ. And there's a whole bunch of things that life is like when you put on Christ. So here are the things that life is not like when you are in Christ. You put on Christ and this world disappears. Just as when you put augmented reality glasses on, the laws of nature are subverted, these rules are subverted when you put Christ on. Listen to the way he describes this. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, to the kind of the old rules... Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways. This in the life you once lived. But now, you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other. Since you've taken off your old self and its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. What he's saying is this. You live in Colossae, right? It's a mercantile town. You're producing all this cloth. It's a town where you are completely caught up in success and greed. It's idolatry, he says. You're just all trying to outdo each other. All you merchants are desperately trying to win at this kind of big game of, of life. And so, of course, what do you do? You lie, you cheat, you slander, you, you, you have filthy language coming from your lips. This is what life is like. It's a highly competitive, overwrought kind of context. Well, when you put on Christ, 
the world is not like that at all. I don't think that the Colossians would have read this and thought, what, I've got to get rid of anger and malice? Oh, geez, I love that stuff. I think when they, they think this is what life is like in Christ, not being backbitten and backbiting other people, not constantly fighting or competing with people, not being focused entirely on greed. And then, of course, at the beginning of the passage, there's all this reference to sexual immorality. You know what life would have been like in the ancient world? It was a man's world for a start. Every man had a wife who would take care of his home and his children, a mistress or a concubine who would entertain him or be seen in public with him, and then prostitutes for sex. Like, that's just how you treat women. It's not like that was not considered evil or terrible or immoral. That's just life. That's just the way it is. And here's what Paul is saying. Here's this. When you put on Christ, those things die. And our families are remade. And now men treat their wives as sisters, as equals. Now the use of women, the use of young boys, this dies, it withers on the vine. And folks, as I said to you before, I think the Colossians would read about this and they would think, oh, thank goodness. Who wants to live in this world? It's so hard. Paul is saying... You put on Christ, that world disappears. And it's replaced by this world. This is what life is like in the new reality that Christ offers to us. He says, here in Christ, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but because Christ is all, then he's in all. Let me just pause at that particular point. Uh, you might be familiar with uh, the book of Philippians where he also adds neither male nor female. Here, Scythians get to represent. What is he saying? That in Christ, when you put on Christ, you're no longer a woman. Or when you put on Christ, you're no longer a slave. Or when you put on Christ, you're no longer a man. No, what he's saying is this. All those categories are used in our society to tell you what your place in this world is and how you should be treated. And they tell me how I can treat you. They are identity markers and they are used to crush the souls of some and offer opportunities for others. So if I meet you and you are a poor, enslaved, Scythian woman, that's four strikes, I know exactly how to treat you, don't I? Like garbage. And you know exactly how you should be treated as well. That's the rules of society. If I meet you and you're a wealthy, gentile man, oh, three identity markers, I know how to treat you and you know how I should treat you. This is society. It's stratified, certain people at the top and certain people at the bottom, and these identity markers help us figure out who's in and who's out, who gets to have a say and who doesn't. And what Paul is saying is this, when you put on Christ... You see a world where no longer do these identity markers determine your place in the stratified society. You're still a woman, you're still a barbarian, you're still enslaved or free, whatever, you're still a Jew, but now, here, you're just my brother. You're just my sister. Christ is in all and works through all. That's what life is like in Christ. And you know what? 
In the ancient world, this was one of the most commendable things about the early church. People would go to early church services or meetings and they would say, slave women were speaking. Like a, 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 poor, a poor Jew was giving a talk. Uh, this woman, this, 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 uh, this servant woman was leading the singing. They would go to these meetings and they would say, there's a slave sitting right next to a free man. Well, there's, a, there's, a, there's an outsider sitting right next to an insider, a non-citizen next to a citizen, male, female, rich, poor, in, out, upside down. They're all one and they are all impelled by the Holy Spirit to bring a song or a psalm or a tongue or a word of interpretation. It completely subverts the whole society as they would understand it. And they were astonished by it. It's like, I've never seen anything like this. In Christ, all those rules change. And now we are brothers and sisters. Christ is in all and can minister through all. But he continues. It gets even better if that's not good enough. He then says this. Um, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other, forgive one another if anyone has any grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. What does he say? If you put on Christ, who do you end up looking more like? Christ. Why should you put on compassion and kindness? Why should you forgive one another? Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus is full of compassion and humility and kindness. Jesus forgives you put on Christ, you see the world through this new lens and you are called to embrace this whole new way of being human. In Christ, it is a completely new, redeemed society. Could you imagine coming from the brutish, cruel, difficult world of the ancient world where it's dog eat dog, where it's like get what you can, win at any cost and you come into a faith community that's neither slave nor free, neither rich nor poor, a place which is full of compassion and kindness and humility, where you are forgiven of all that you've done, that you're entering into this community as he continues to explain it, a community of perfect unity, above all these virtues, put on love which binds all things together. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful. This is what it is to put on Christ. It's not like, try and be more thankful, people. No, it's like, put on Christ and let him make you more thankful. Does this make sense? No, it doesn't make sense. Here, here's how to explain it. I'll go back to C.S. Lewis again, right? If you've never heard of him, he's way smarter than me. And I did think of, in this next session, just paraphrasing what he says. But can I just read what he says? Because he explains what it means to put on Christ, to put on the lens or the goggles of Jesus and be shaped by Jesus. This is for mere Christianity. It's from that section that I read a little earlier before. He says this. Now, the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, not made, which always existed and always will exist. Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we shall also be children of God. 
We shall love the Father as Jesus does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. He came into this world and became human in order to spread to other humans this kind of life that he has by what I call a good infection. You become more like Jesus by yielding yourself to him, by putting on Christ and letting him, it's like osmosis, it's like an infection, letting his spirit infect you and reshape you more and more into his likeness. It requires utter humility, complete yielding, a letting go, a holding nothing back and offering everything that you are over to the leadership and the transformation of Jesus, our King. And then he explains it in this beautiful English kind of way. He says this, that means that a real person, Christ, here and now, in that very room where you are saying your prayers, is doing things to you. It's not a question of a good man who died 2,000 years ago. It's a living man, still as much a human as you, and still as much God as he was when he created the world, really coming and interfering with your very self, killing the old natural self in you and replacing it with the kind of self he has. At first, only for moments, then for longer periods. And finally, if all goes well, turning you permanently into a different sort of thing, into a new little Christ, a being which in its own small way has the same kind of life as God and which shares in his power, joy, knowledge and eternity. If you've ever used virtual reality goggles, you'll know that when you first put them on, it's like really disorienting and you kind of take them off again to kind of like get your bearings. And it sounds exactly like the way he talks about putting on Christ. You put on Christ, just maybe just for a little moment where it's like, whoa, this world is completely different. Whoa, get my bearings again. And then maybe for longer periods and longer periods, until finally, if all goes well, he completely transforms you from the inside out into a little Christ. Do you want this? This is your destiny. This is what you're born for. To become like this. To become like Christ, not by your own efforts, not by trying harder by abandoning yourself to his grace. St. Clair of Assisi put it way more simply and more poetically, but just as well. She says, we become what we love. And who we love shapes what we become. If we love things, we become a thing. If we love nothing, we become nothing. Imitation is not a literal mimicking of Christ. Rather, it means becoming the image of the beloved, an image disclosed through transformation. You're not imitating Jesus by trying to mimic him. His image is, is bestowed upon you and the transformation happens at his grace. So how do we do it? Well, you could, in that room that C.S. Lewis was kind of referring, you could just call out to Jesus. Holy Jesus, come and take control of my life. Shape my vision, shape my outlook. Completely transform me from the inside out. I know I can't do this by my own efforts, but only you and only over time can you make me into the little Christ that I so deeply desire. At the very end of this passage, when Paul wraps it up in verses 16 and 17, 
He goes into a very different direction to where I thought of imagined. How do you become, how do we as a church become this little Christ? Listen to the way the passage ends. After he's just told you to put on Christ and to be part of this magnificent vision of compassion and kindness and forgiveness and holiness and unity, he then puts it this way. This is verses um, uh, 16 and 17, the conclusion of the passage. He says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. So far, so good, right? It's like, how do you become like a little Christ? By learning about Christ, by being admonished, by being shaped and coached and encouraged in this. And so it might be, well, how do you become a little Christ? By listening to lots of good sermons, by going to Bible studies and listening to podcasts and by getting all the the knowledge that's going to help shape your vision of who Jesus is. And there's no question, I mean, one of the options could be to go to Mauling College and be shaped in the way you look at Jesus and what you understand about Jesus. And there's no doubt that Paul in other passages refers to the importance of teaching and of admonishment or encouragement within the community. But that's not where he goes in this instance. If you want to become like a little Christ, if you want to abandon yourself over to this, this, this beautiful vision of setting your mind and your heart on the things of Christ, the one who created heaven and earth and in whom all things hold together, do it like this. Do it through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. What? Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. We're going to sing up this world of compassion. We're going to sing up this world of kindness. We're going to sing up this world of unity and peace and thankfulness. We come together and we give voice to this world and then we live into it. I mean, I did not see Paul going there. I was thinking it would all be about sermons or teaching. But here's where he explains to us the real power and potency of Christian worship. When we come together and we sing spiritual songs, we create almost like a a field of influence. We collectively speak up the gospel of Jesus and then live into that, get our heads into that. Have any of you ever heard of pub church? The pub choir, I'm sorry. Pub choir started up in Brisbane like a few years ago. A music teacher just put some posters up and advertised online, come to this particular pub in Fortitude Valley. I'm a music teacher. I'm going to teach you all how to sing a song as a choir. If you've never been in a choir, if you can't sing, if people have told you in the past to stop singing, come to this pub and I will teach you how to sing. I may not make you a great singer, but if you come to join pub choir, you'll be able to sing well enough. So scores of people showed up and she taught them how to sing Free Fallen by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. They recorded it, they put it online, everyone was watching it, so she advertised again. More people showed up, 100 or so people showed up. She did another song, she breaks them in three parts, they do three-part harmonies, they just sing pop songs. They record it, they put it online, and it gathers this following. They started doing songs like Zombie by the Cranberries, Creep by Radiohead, Running Up the Hill by Kate Bush. They're just pop songs. But if you ever want to Google pub choir, you can watch their performances. She's now run it in every city in Australia, New Zealand, Auckland and Wellington, London and New York. The last performance of pub choir wasn't in a pub, it was at the Enmore Theatre. 2,500 people sang shares if I could turn back time. If you watch some of these videos, 
People have tears in their eyes. Their faces are beaming with joy. People like me, who can't hold a tune, are bellowing on the top of their lungs. I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. I don't belong here. <laughs> what the hell am I doing here? Oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> I watch pub choir performances and I think, if Creep by Radiohead could do that, if singing a meaningless song like that could foster that sense of environment, of inclusion and welcome and non-judgmentalism and love and joy, what would happen if Christians gathered together and on the top of their lungs, with tears in their eyes, they didn't sing running up that hill, they didn't sing if I could turn back time, they sang about compassion and kindness. What if they sang about forgiveness and forbearance? What if we sang up a world about peace and unity and gratitude? What if we gave voice? I don't care if you're a slave or free, a male or female, rich or poor, barbarian or Scythian. I don't care if you can't hold a tune. I don't care if you sound terrible. Here, you sound beautiful. Seeing up this world that Christ has invited us to be part of and offer yourself into the arms of Christ. Make me, transform me, shape me. I've been trying my hardest and it's not working because it's not up to you. It's up to the beautiful, gracious, marvelous Jesus who created the universe, who holds all things together, but who knows your name, who loves you, and who wants to enter into your whole imagination and completely reshape the way you see the world and yourself and each other to become this magnificent army, this flood of little Christs sent out to transform this broken, horrible, pained, desperate life and world. You with me? You want this? Let go and offer yourself into his arms of grace. Let me say a prayer. Father, I pray for anyone here in this room who has tried so hard to be good, tried so hard to stop doing this or to start doing that. And they've done it because they loved you and they thought that's what they were meant to do, but They've put so much of their own effort and their own strength into trying to be like you when really, Father, they needed to abandon themselves to your grace, to repent of their sin and to throw themselves upon you and ask you to shape their vision, to be that whole outlook on life, to knit them together into a redeemed society of persons and Lord, together to sing up this magnificent new world that you offer us, that you offer us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
Lord, I pray for anyone who's come to the end of their tether and can't work any harder to be like you. Lord, comfort them in the marvellous truth that it's your grace, not their effort, that will make them into a little Christ and give them the courage to let go and to abandon themselves into your good purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.